Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. So those who know me know that I love the words like awesome and wonderful and fabulous and amazing and fantastic. Um, But today I'm actually going to be talking about a word that I don't use. Um, In fact, I don't remember using it at all in um, the way that I communicate with people over the last um, few years. And that is extraordinary. Uh, And I love the word. I'm not sure why I haven't used it. Uh, But we've got author Jared Penner, who is a leadership advisor and coach to billionaires, CEOs, boards, and senior leaders working in diverse settings from uh, desert mining camps to high-tech startups and skyscraping boardrooms. He's also CEO and founder of Extraordinary Leaders, a training company deeply committed to lifting the bar on leadership and leadership development. And today, that's what we're talking about, extraordinary. Where does extraordinary come from? And I'm wondering why I haven't been using it because it's a great word. (laughs) That's a great, great question. Um, About maybe 10, 15 years ago, I started, I noticed that I was working a lot with organizations that had big transformation agendas. Like they were really struggling to be successful in the environments in which they were operating the demands that have been placed on them were much greater than they could meet and they needed transformation. So I noticed that the leaders who were really effective in transforming organizations and not just maintaining the status quo behaved in ways which were something beyond the ordinary. They, They were behaving differently. They were producing outcomes in terms of results and relationships that were different as well. And so I came to this conclusion, this realization that if you want to transform a system or change something and really challenge the status quo ordinary doesn't doesn't cut it because ordinary typically we equate with you know some of the ho-hum average garden variety kind of leadership that we kind of have to tolerate in our daily lives so extraordinary just seemed to be like a really important word to to kind of recognize that if we want leaders who can meet some of the big challenges that we've got in our organizations and our communities and our teams and our institutions, they're going to have to learn to do something beyond ordinary and extraordinary for me, kind of nailed it. Mm, Absolutely. When I think about extraordinary, I think about, and this is probably a reflection of the pace and the way that I operate. I think about it as being bigger, better, faster, stronger. What I've learned about leadership, particularly over the last, um, you know, 10 years, because I've slowed down enough to actually hear what people have to say is it's not always the case. Extraordinary doesn't have to mean that, does it? No, it doesn't. In fact, some of the most extraordinary leaders that I have seen or worked with, they don't stand out in that kind of charismatic, bold, faster, harder. They're incredibly humble. They're quiet. They're reserved, but they have fierce resolve, a deep purpose-led commitment to making things happen, but combined with with this warmth, this ability to connect with people and achieve results with and through people rather than just through their own individual effort. And, and, and it's that unique combination, which is, it, it's much less noticeable. So you don't necessarily see it, but when you encounter it, when they're your leader, you know it. Because the people who have had that experience know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And so did you have that experience yourself? Is that you had a leader that was like that? Sure did. I had these two experiences that were pretty close to each other in time and space that as a 15-year-old provided me with something that that I, has been central to all of the work that I've been doing for the last 35 years and really ignited the passion and leadership. My very first job as a casual was in a supermarket and my very first day I had this store manager who within half an hour of working with him, I, I was standing next to him as he was yelling and shouting at a department manager, throwing vegetables at the ground. And, and I just remembered this look on this department manager's face. He, he, he was so humiliated and so embarrassed. Um, what this store manager, my first boss, um, didn't know was that I'd actually been bullied as a kid. And so I have a, almost like now pathological dislike of bullying and so I decided in that moment that I couldn't work for him. I told him that. I said, you're a bully. I actually used different words. And I walked out and I went home. My father was absolutely aghast. He, he thought that I was never going to ever going to be employed again, that at the age of 15, I'd, I'd thrown all my chances out the window. But fortunately, a department store hired me just a few weeks later and they put me in the lighting department. Now, if you know anything about the lighting department, it's the most boring place you could possibly work as a 15-year-old boy. <laughs> No one ever visits there. No one ever bought anything. I was bored. Everyone else was bored. There was no performance. And we got this new store, new department manager not long after I started. His name was John. I remember him really clearly. John came in. He was pretty committed to turning the results around, but he was fantastic because he engaged all of us in doing something. I was a casual. I was working two or three shifts a week. He engaged me in doing some of the work around how we'd actually promote product and actually how we might get people into the department. And then once they got into the department, how would we service their needs and meet their needs in such a way that they'd want to buy more, feel really satisfied and come back. Just a few months after we sort of hatched this plan and we were all involved, beginning of my shift, he stood next to me and he had this piece of paper in his hand. He said, I want you to look at this. These are the results for the last couple of weeks. And these are the products that you fitted to those boards that, you know, we've been promoting that you were part of. What do you notice? And I explained how to read the sheet. And I said, all of them have gone up. Their sales have gone up 40%, 80%, this one, 130%. And he, he turned to me and he looked me in the eye. I'm a little 15 year old casual boy. He looks me in the eye and he says, exactly. This is because of the effort that you and your teammates put in. And he said, thank you. And in that moment, it was, and when, when, you ha when you receive praise, when someone recognises your potential and your contribution, particularly at that age, my, my chest swelled. I, I felt a million dollars. I, I felt like I was doing something really important. And I have that deep, deep embodied memory of that moment. And that was when I realised there are two very different versions of leadership that can show up. And I know which one I would rather be and I know which one I would rather be at the receiving end of and so it really sparked a commitment to try and encourage more of that in the world. That's a wonderful experience to have at such a young age as well and I love that he didn't just because I think a lot of leaders go oh I'm going to thank my staff more um, and I, I actually one of my first jobs was working in a roadhouse and I used to be the waitress and the cook there was one particular lady and she would always make us clean and do all mm. this crappy stuff and but at the end of every shift she'd say thanks for your help today I know that it, you know I know I pushed you hard and and that was nice but I like how 
your leader when you were 15 actually gave a lot more meaning the meaning was deeper and and got you to really learn through the process and I mean that's a different kind of thanks it is John John was probably my first experience of someone who so when he was enlisting us he didn't just say what we needed to do he actually took went to great lengths to explain why why it would matter to customers why it would matter to us um, and then afterwards when he was explaining you know, the impact I had, it wasn't just thank you. I was able to connect my effort to the result. So it felt genuine. It felt sincere. And, and I find this is a, a, a really central ingredient in leaders who are more effective is that they, they go beyond the what and they really help make sure that people understand the why because it galvanizes people, it energizes people, it gives them criteria against which to evaluate their actions and their decisions. It takes time to do it, but what it generates is just something much better. Yeah. Don't we wish that everyone adopted that? Why do I have to do it? Because I said so, although not, mm. not as much of that happens in the workplace as much as it does still in the home with parents. <laughs> that, that, that Shelley is the real challenge that when we can bring some of those really conscious, deliberate, intentional, helpful leadership behaviors into our parenting, when we're not being triggered emotionally, when those, those things aren't going off inside of us that, that kind of cause us to show up in less helpful ways. I, that for me is real, real evidence of growth. Well, that has a direct impact on the next generation as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. So when you um, were working with John and you had this contrast between him and the guy that <clears throat> I'd love to know what you said um, to him when you left, um, did you then use the, the contrast between the two to kind of make decisions around how you would lead when you got into that role? Yeah, I, I did. And in fact, but the path towards being more effective or effective as a leader wasn't as quick and as competent and as clean as you would hope having had that experience. So for me, what I came from away from that experience is, is knowing that there's a version of leadership, which is really focused on kind of being tough, is being strong, you know, and at its worst, it's abusive and it's, and it's reckless, but it's, you know, it's driven to probably make things happen. And then the opposite of that for me was leadership that was connected. It was warm. It cared about people. It was, more, it was more concerned about people than it was about performance, about outcomes. And I actually held those two things as, as mutually exclusive, as opposites, as if they were two ends of a continuum. And that for me to show up with more strength and drive and outcomes and, and sort of results orientation, I had to give up the warmth or to show up with more warmth more connection, more relationship orientation, I had to give up the strength. And so in my early years, I was, I was flipping from one to the other, you know, I was showing up really strong outcomes oriented, results focused, and then say, oh, but you're not, I'm not being particularly warm towards people. So I'd focused on the warmth and the connection and the empowerment and lose, lose any kind of focus on outcomes. So it was, I was treating them as trade-offs and that's, that now that I've done all this research around those two polarities, I understand they're not opposites. The opposite of strength is not warmth and the opposite of warmth is not strengths. Can I, I'd love to pause on that for a moment because I too, I was very results focused and at the expense of people. And then I'd, I'd flip and usually, you know, the, the prompter was uh, engagement surveys coming out in May uh, you know, February, March or March, April, we'll start to do all the free lunches. And <laughs> so it was very, um, yeah, it was very considered 
how we were going to do it and very planned, uh, not very genuine. But then there'd be, you know, end of financial year or whenever that was and you'd flip across to the other side. Um, I found I automatically gravitated to results over people and it wasn't that I didn't care. But I'm really, I'm a little bit confused. I'd love your sort of input on why is it that there's so many of us that feel like they are on opposite ends of a spectrum? It's a great question. Um, and I've developed any number of hypotheses about that, but the predominant ones that I I suspect are in play is that part of it's a lot of it's sociological and it's contextual. So for example, when you start to work in a business context, businesses and corporates are often primarily interested in results. Historically, that's what they have always been interested in outcomes and results. So we tend to focus on that. Um, the other reason, uh, and, and the other reason is that when we, when we grow, as we grow up, and this is a, this is potentially a controversial point of view, but I, I think it actually it's a hypothesis that holds holds water. As you know that, and it's probably better than anyone, as a female leader, that there is a there's been a societal stereotype of females as having been warm, connecting, relationship oriented, and males historically have been taught to be strong, tough, invulnerable, mm-hmm. make things happen. And so those, and the evidence is very clear. So the scientific research around this is absolutely clear that that's actually what underpins gender bias, that, that therefore women can't be strong, tough, outcomes-oriented, make things happen. And for the same reason, we kind of, we struggle, we've historically struggled with the idea of men being warm and nurturing and connected and vulnerable and open and emotional. Historically, those two things because we've held gender as being binary, male and female. So therefore, as we grow as young children, we see these characteristics of strength and warmth being embodied in gender. Strength, male, warmth, female. And right from the get-go. So imagine, just picture how people hold baby girls. Isn't she, they rock them gently. Aren't you a beautiful little girl? Then I hold a baby boy and they grab him around the waist and they kind of, Jiggle them up and down and go, oh, he's a strong boy. You know, like this messaging is, is so early and so pernicious and so persistent. And as a consequence, we hold, because we hold gender to be binary, we hold those two characteristics to be binary. They can't be embodied in the same person. Now, thank God we are making progress with our views on gender. Thank God we're making views, progress with our definitely views on gender. And I'm, I'm hopeful that what we'll actually see as a consequence is those two things being able, we'll, we'll, we'll have an experience earlier in our lives, which says that these two things can actually come together and be together. Mm. It's got me thinking actually about your first boss and, you know, his reaction to things and whether under the surface, there was a bit of conflict between warmth and strength. Um, Cause often I see those that are the strongest or the ones that are, the most offensive or it feels hurtful are often the ones that don't, it doesn't come naturally to them that they've got. So do you see that? I do. Um, I mean, there's plenty of evidence from sort of, if you look into therapy and you look into the psychology of this, that, you know, some people who actually, who lack warmth because they're actually afraid of the world. This is fear, which is holding them back. So they develop these protective, tough, strong personas. And it's in the, if they are unable to acknowledge 
and I use the term love, their ability to love and their capacity to love other people, then they end up so imbalanced. You know, so it, it is a denial of love, a denial of connection. Maybe they're afraid to connect with people. Maybe they're afraid of the risks associated with connecting with people. Who knows what happened to them in the playground? But there, there is, I suspect, and I find this in my executive coaching work, that when I'm working with a leader who is really low on warmth, that when you dig into it, there's always a backstory with it. There's always a fear associated with it. And once they confront that fear and they, they can learn to connect, be courageous enough to do that and to be vulnerable, to be open, then they usually progress really, really well. And their leadership becomes so much more powerful. Absolutely. And so the extraordinary leader holds um, people and results in parallel, um, but with the same importance or with the same kind of focus. Yeah. They're capable of holding them with equal importance, but they're also capable of recognizing what are those moments where I might need to dial up the strengths and the focus on the outcomes and results and maybe be more dominant in my behavior and therefore maybe dial down the warmth where I might be in that moment, a bit less consultative, mm-hmm. you know, I, I might actually choose to take the smile off my face because it's not appropriate for the moment. You know, I might make these choices in my behavior and my action to reflect what's needed in that moment to actually be effective as a leader. And at other times I'll dial up my warmth, I'll dial up my connection, I'll dial up my openness and I might dial down the focus on making things happen because that's actually what's needed right now Mm. to connect to the people that I'm attempting to lead and mobilize and engage with. And then I've got the choice. I can actually dial each of those up and down according to the circumstances. So my leadership becomes much more fit for the different situations and the different people that I'm going to encounter. And so you wouldn't see an extraordinary leader saying, well, it's in my personality that I do this, um, that they can disconnect from that or, I don't know, I kind of call BS on personality. I'm so confused about what it is and whether it actually exists, um, but is able to go, what's the context? What are my behaviours? What have I got access to? It's spot on. So in fact, there's two comments I'd make about that. One is that there's plenty of evidence now which says that personality does change and it can change. In fact, one of the most powerful things is to actually engage in some kind of therapeutic context. That might be with a therapist or a coach Mm. so that you can actually, you can make progress with changing your predispositions and your tendencies. And I agree with you. I think the, the excuse of that's my personality, it's kind of like saying, I have no control over my behavior because how I show up is actually about my behavior. What people see of me, what they hear of me, what they experience of me, they don't experience my personality. That's, that's something which is kind of, a, it's a concept. What they experience of me is actually my behavior, whether I'm smiling or whether I'm frowning, whether I'm asking questions and gen, genuinely inquiring and deep listening or whether I'm just telling them what to do, that's behavior. And any of us at any moment in time can choose a different behavior. I run this exercise in programs with people. And so I'm going to prove it to you that you can choose a different behavior right now. Smile, smile as big as you can. And people put on these big cheesy smiles. And now I, then I tell them frown, scowl at me, be, look angry with me as if you hate my guts and they do it. And my observation is, well, folks, clearly you can choose whatever behavior you like if you're aware of your behavior and if it's important enough for you to choose a different behavior. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so in your book, you, you refer to um, systems thinking with Daniel Kahneman. I absolutely love the concept and as simple as it is, I find it actually has a profound impact on 
um, conversations that I'm having with leaders um, and that, you know, I talk about the difference between systems one and systems two. And again, they sort of think systems two is um, it's about going faster and being stronger and bigger. Um, but actually then you go, well, no, it's actually about doing what it is that you don't naturally gravitate to. But I see systems thinking as being how you learn to be able to dial up and dial down uh, but, you know, keen to, to hear your thoughts around how you use the systems thinking concept. Yeah. So if you're talking about sort of the, the two systems and Daniel, what Daniel Kahneman talks about, about thinking fast and thinking slow, yes. which, you know, the, the fast thinking is that instinctual, habitual, automatic, you know, high, you know, the, the, the signals going down highly myelinated neural pathways so that they're so fast that it just shows up, you know, that, that a, a thought or a feeling we have about something was actually decided by our non-conscious thinking before we even became aware of it. And, and I think that knowing that that goes on is really important for leaders because the very best leadership is deliberate, it's intentional, it's choiceful. And if our non-conscious is already deciding things and our conscious merely becomes an observer to that, then we actually as leaders are being held by all of this automatic programming and and some of it's good some of it's probably helpful but a bunch of it's not so being able to even get up on the balcony and see the dance you're doing actually be able to kind of raise yourself to a little level of metacognition where you're thinking about your thinking observing your own behavior becoming really curious about it and understanding that all all that is is just a bunch of neural pathways that have kind of caught primacy and how can you create new ones how can you therefore weaken old ones? How can you learn new behaviors, new habits that are actually going to be much more helpful to you and helpful to what you're trying to achieve with your leadership? And so when you're, when you're growing, it doesn't necessarily mean doing more of or faster with the things that you're already doing. Sometimes it means actually doing something that you don't do at all. For me, it was being quiet. Yes, that's exactly it. So I, I, and this is where I actually have, I have conflict. I experience conflict when I hear about strength-based development programs. On the one hand, I believe it to be absolutely true that you should acknowledge your strengths. You know, those things that you do particularly well in your environment are those things that have enabled you to occupy this unique ecological niche, which is you in your environment that allows you to be better than anyone else at being you. Mm. And some of those things are going to be really helpful. The problem is some of those strengths, when they're overplayed, when they're too automatic, too amplified, too instinctual, too triggered, too fast, they actually are tendencies which get in the way. I'll give you a simple example. So we, a leader does need to exercise some level of control. There's nothing wrong with exercising control, taking control. In fact, a lot of people have created very, very successful lives and careers for themselves by taking control of things. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things that human beings are able to do is take control. Mm. But when, when our instinct, particularly when we're being challenged by circumstances and we're feeling busy and we're tired or we're fatigued, if our instinct is to control, 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 you know, I could say, well, that's a strength. I'm just leveraging that strength. Well, that's actually going to get in the way. So there is a moment, I think, where we do need to realize that what we need to innovate into our thinking and our practice might actually be the opposite of what we currently do, which is very, very challenging because your thinking system will want to reject that. 
So given that both you and I went through the process of discovering this ourselves, how does one need to go through that to work it out or listening to this podcast, reading your book, like, is that, is that enough? Or, or even having a boss like the one that you had when they were 15, like, can we skip the part where we have to go through all the mess and, and, you know, <laughs> upset people and <laughs> run amok? Yeah. So um, the evidence would suggest, no, you cannot skip it. And uh, my own experience says it's very difficult to skip. Um, there are a few, you might call them fortunate individuals. By, by, by some ver- dint of their genetic makeup and often because of their upbringing where they're encourage them to think in this way understand the thing they do there are different truths and different ways of being you can't grow but if you've grown in that environment where you've learned that lesson then, then maybe but most of us have life to realize that our way of thinking and being is actually not fit for how we're trying to try to experience the world some maybe 30 percent grow beyond their current ways of thinking operating into something new bigger more functional a lot don't a lot kind of go it because it feels messy i'd rather just step back into how i was and 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 adopt a more protective position how how much of it is because they don't get the feedback or the realization doesn't land for them around how yes messy but how much greener the pastures are once once you can get through that how much you have um, the ability to let go of things and not, I mean, it's just so nice, this space that you discover after that. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I, I think about my coaching practice and you, you'll know really well this idea that is someone coachable is a really important question for the coach. And the two criteria that were taught to me by, of all people, a Buddhist Lama. And this Buddhist Lama who I studied with, I actually studied mindfulness for a number of years with this Buddhist Lama. Who, and a Lama is actually not a furry creature with four legs. They're a scholar. That's a, it's a level of scholarship in the Buddhist tradition and Buddhist philosophy and practice. And this fellow is also a neuroscience researcher at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara campus. And he and I remember him sharing with me his perspective. And when he said it to me, it resonated so quickly. I knew that it was a truth. And that is that, you know, often people will only make progress in their growth and development when one, at least one of two conditions is present. One is that they have an aspiration or a dream or a vision for themselves that they've been trying to achieve and they just can't get there and they just know they keep bumping up against something and they now need help. They need, to, they need to be encouraged to see it differently. Or they've got a problem that's really bothering them, creating potentially suffering for themselves that they need to solve, but their normal way of solving it is just not working because they've tried again and again and again to just do faster, harder, and it's not working. And if one of those two conditions exist, then people will grow. And, and our job is just to support them to do that. I like that. And I'm actually um, noticing the 
number of leaders that are bumping up against burnout, definitely exhaustion um, over the past couple of years might create that catalyst. So would you think based on the current conditions that we would see a bit of a, a pickup in the pace of change with leaders because they're experiencing that, you know, pain and discomfort now? I'm hopeful mm. that they are not because I want people to have pain and discomfort, but I'm hopeful because, and you just need to look at what's happened in our political environment for the last 10 years. As a good example, right now what's going on is all of this commentary about the fact that our energy system is stuffed. We're now sort of inheriting the consequences of largely inaction on the energy transition. You know, I suspect that part of that is held by pe- is because people were held by the system that they were in. They were happy with the status quo and we didn't have enough sort of transformational leaders who were able to really courageously mobilise people. You know, kind of your... Your, your Bob Hawkes or even John Howard, he, he sort of drove through quite a bit of change. Um, that, that transformational leadership, that kind of leadership, we need more of it, but people have to grow into it for us to have more of it. And often they don't need to grow into it until the circumstances present that they're presented with require them to grow into it. And I think that's part of that idea that the, sort of like the moment calls the leadership that's needed. So I'm hopeful that the environment we're in right now creates those conditions in which more extraordinary leaders can show up mm. and we benefit from that and we make progress with some of the problems that we've been pretty slow with. Mm. When you think about your, um, and I, I totally agree with that, I think we've got to be able to um, get above the the system and the environment that we're, we're conditioned to and see what is um, possible and that can be a really tough thing to do particularly if we're surrounded by people who are quite happy to conform and and sit back and um take the easy path um albeit it's harder in the long run what are some um you know you talk about um hidden moments of transformation uh, in the book and i'm curious about what hidden moments of transformation you've experienced me personally or some yeah. of the leaders that I've worked with? Yeah. Me personally. Okay. It's a great question. Um, one of which one of which was, was really quite central in my life. Was, I consider it actually with a pivot, really important pivot moment. So like many people, my version of success was corporate an achievement in the corporate context. You know, I'd, I'd worked inside organizations and I've been promoted pretty rapidly to senior positions in these companies. And then I went into the consulting world and I was promoted really rapidly through the, the consulting world. And I was ticking all the boxes and doing all the things. And I, and I love the work I was doing. It was really challenging and I was growing, but I was kind of, I was growing horizontally, not vertically. I was kind of growing in the competencies and the knowledge I was acquiring as opposed to really transforming as an individual. And then I went out with um, a couple of other people. We founded a, a firm of organizational psychologists. It was going gangbusters. We had offices overseas, offices around Australia. We were growing really fast. And this is at this stage I was married. My, my wife Tamsin and I had been married a year or two. And I noticed myself driving to work, kind of feeling, feeling like my motivation was low. Like there was, a, there was something gnawing at me and I couldn't work out what it was. And I was driving home late, gnawing at me. And I was doing what I thought I wanted to be doing. All I knew was that this, this discomfort, this gnawing feeling, but I couldn't tell you what it was and I couldn't tell you what it was, what was causing it. My daughter was born not long 
after that feeling emerged. Uh, my daughter, Lally, she's now 17. I have a son, Dash, who's 14. It was a very long labour. Um, and it was in the middle of the night. We were in the delivery suite. And my, as my daughter's head started to crown, my wife, Tamsin, was you know, doing all the really hard work. This song came on the radio, Little Ray of Sunshine. You know, the ray of sunshine is coming to the world. And, and I remember in that moment thinking, I kid you not, this is all great. This is perfect. It's all happening, apart from the fact that my wife's in pain and I can't do anything to help her. And then when Lally came out, it all turned to crap. She came out, she was blue, she wasn't breathing. And so the obstetrician and the midwife grabbed her straight away and took her to the crib in the corner and they started working on her. And at the same time, my wife started hemorrhaging. And I remember in that, that moment, feeling like the world completely dropped out from underneath my feet. And that, that moment of thought went through my head, you're going to lose both of these people. You know, and for me, that like was a deep embodied, awful feeling, the people that you love. And then fortunately, the obstetrician midwife knew exactly what they were doing. They, they gave Lally an injection and she started breathing. And the obstetrician came over and took care of Tamsin and sort of did what he needed to do. And, and that slowed down. And I remember feeling like things were back, but you know, when things get fragmented in that way, they never come back together quite the way they were. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I realized what was most important in my life. And so orienting my life and my career around my family has forced me to understand that and, and at the same time do important, challenging, meaningful work professionally forced me to, to have to address these two things around kind of, you know, competence and drive and outcomes and success as well as connection and love and communion and belonging. Um, and so that experience, apart from leading to a whole bunch of experiments I've run in my life around how to create balance, and how to have meaningful connection and, and do important work. Mm. It forced me to pay attention to these two things around love and power or strength and warmth, whatever you want to call them. So that for me, hidden away from everybody's eyes, except those people who were in that delivery room at that moment, people wouldn't know unless I shared the story. So fascinating. And it's, do you think we need to share more of that with our people because you know you would have left on one day and come back the next and yes you'd become a dad in that process but there was so much more um and we can make assumptions around what's going on but it, it's so helpful when we can actually hear stories from people I think there's such power in stories particularly if we're looking to create extraordinary yeah I think you're right Shelley um and I've been wondering why that is and, and how it relates to leadership because I've experienced exactly the same thing and I've observed it. And in fact, I understand that the Richmond Tigers at the beginning of the period in which they started to really improve as a team and come together, they actually had this, this thing where they told these stories. Each person had to tell three stories about themselves. And one of the stories was about tragedy. Another one was around sort of tribulation or success. And, and they talked about how that, created these bonds and connections between people, this trust. And I've come to the conclusion that what our brain really needs to know about someone else, particularly those people that it need, we need to trust and trust their leadership if we're going to follow them, 
is we need to know who that person is, not what they're good at, not what they're capable of, not just their strengths, but who they really are. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to know that they're prepared to be human around us, to be vulnerable around us, to trust us enough by sharing these stories, these revealing stories of themselves, to trust us enough for our brains to actually learn, oh, maybe if they trust us, then we can trust them because we know the person that actually is behind the position or the person who's behind the facade mm. or the competence. I think, you're, I think you're right onto it, Shelley. Yeah, I love that. And I and it sort of brings back full circle to um, letting go of the fear because I know a lot of leaders um, don't want to ask their people a question just in case they come up with something. You know, there's still this um, enormous pressure for leaders to be able to solve every problem and have an answer for everything. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's just, just hold the space. Um, and so to remove that fear and really help people to feel like you, you hear them, you don't need to solve their problems. We don't, I hold it to be true that one of the fallacies and one of the most helpful beliefs about senior leadership, for example, and I only use senior leadership because often we hold senior leaders or people in positions of great authority, they've got all the answers and they've got it all sorted out. And we know that whenever that happens, whenever we think that and whenever they behave that way, nothing changes because they feel like they have to keep coming up with answers that don't work. They, they can't say, hey, folks, I don't have the answers. I can't solve this on my own but my job is to work out how to galvanize us and mobilize us to find the answers mm. and 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 make progress together it's very revealing and 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 courageous for a leader to do that but what it produces is collective effort and i love the fact that jacinda ardern literally said those sorts of words at the beginning of covid she didn't she said on the one hand you know we've got to make these decisions but this challenge is something we all have to work on together I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Problem is that our society is built in such a way that sometimes when we look to people of great authority who say they don't have all the answers, they get they get pilloried. Um, happened to Barack Obama when, after ISIS came to sort of dominance in the Middle East, he actually said those words. He said, "We don't have a strategy for ISIS," and the media and the opposition just hammered him and said, "How can the president of the United States not have an answer?" He was just being honest. Mm. And there was not enough people who in the positions that could have created change to say, get back in your box. You're actually just give the guy a break, you know, show a bit of humility. Yeah. Too many of us, I think, have learned a much more helpless version or helpless to us as followers of leaders, which says that leaders have all the answers and all we need to do is just do what we're told. They will make everything okay for us. Um, And we, it's convenient for us to actually hold that belief because then we don't have to do the hard work. Mm. It's on everyone to do their part. And as a collective, that's how we make change together. Um, yeah, such a, a good good point to probably end our conversation on. I think I could continue talking to you for, for a long time. Uh, for me, definitely taking some key themes around um, being curious both about what my own potential is as well as, you know, what I'm doing that might be limiting and what are other people doing? Where does that come from? And the humility that allows me just to uh, be able to sit back and observe and not put the pressure on myself. So, you know, it's been a great conversation just to really highlight those two two things. So thank you so much for the conversation. It's been fabulous. Thank you, Shelley. I've really enjoyed it. I'd even say it's been extraordinary. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm glad it wasn't ho-hum, mediocre or average. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, thank you so much. Um, I will put the link to connect with Jared um, and to get a copy of the book in the comments. So keep an eye on that. Um, and I look forward to everyone joining for another dynamic leader conversation soon. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.